Well, good morning, Ambassador Bible Fellowship. I am doing this morning what I hoped not to have to do for quite some time uh, in uh, once more uh, preaching to a camera. Uh, I was really looking forward uh, to being able to, to gather uh, at the park uh, this morning to be able to, uh, to worship with you all uh, and to enjoy uh, some fellowship together and some softball uh, after we worship the Lord. And uh, then we had to, to move back from phase four to phase three, uh, and all while I was out of town, uh, I was back in Minnesota for a family reunion, and then suddenly I'm getting uh, text messages uh, bringing uh, really bad news, uh, but uh, it's uh, still uh, an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning uh, and to, to continue our series uh, on uh, the church and uh, I would love to to begin by just asking a very simple question. Uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Now that is a, a very big question, uh, a, a question that many people have sought to answer and uh, propose many uh, different answers. Uh, but uh, if we're really going to answer that question, we have to, to look to the pages of Scripture because that question, what does it mean to follow Jesus, is of the utmost importance because when, when we answer that question and we try and uh, find the right answer to that question, uh, we are ultimately going to, to be describing what is expected of us because Jesus calls us to, to follow him uh, and the reason this is so important is how we follow Jesus reveals what we believe about him. Okay, How we follow Jesus reveals what we believe about him. And, and how we live our day-to-day -day lives uh, is a constant proclamation of our theology. What we believe about Jesus is revealed in, in what we think, what we say, what we do on a regular basis. Uh, and now if that is true for individual believers, then it is even more true for churches. And how a church body follows Jesus reveals what we believe about Jesus. So as a church body, we can ask, what does it look like? for us as a church to follow after Christ. Uh, and uh, I'll offer my own definition here uh, on what it means for us to, to follow Jesus. Very, very short and succinct, and then I'll give an expanded version. But uh, very, very briefly, to follow Jesus is to trust and submit to him. Uh, if we wanted to expand that out a little bit more, uh, to follow Jesus is to trust in his person and work of who he is, what he has done, and to submit to his lordship in every area of life. And so as a church, we need to have orthodoxy, which is believing what Jesus has taught. So orthodoxy just means right uh, belief, right worship. But that orthodoxy must be accompanied by orthopraxy, or right practice. So we must believe what Jesus has taught, and then we must also practice what he has taught. Uh, our walk must match our talk. And, and how all of this comes together is two weeks ago, we looked at the, the purpose of the church. The priority of the church is worship. Now, if we're going to, to talk that, if we're going to say 
that Jesus is the priority, that, that he is the, the purpose for our existence and that as a church and as individuals and ultimately all of creation, as we saw, exists for the glory of the triune God. And so if we're going to say that the church exists to worship Jesus, to glorify him, then we also need to say that he is worthy of our submission. Right? If he's worthy of our worship, then he's also worthy of our submission. Uh, and as we saw, we are to, to submit to him uh, by obeying all that he has commanded of us in his word. And, and, and that's why I, where we moved, we, we spoke uh, several weeks ago about how the church fits into God's uh, program. Right? How does God's? How does the church fit into God's plan for all of human history? And then we looked at the priority of the church, which is worship. Uh, and first and foremost, we have to focus upon that. But then, close behind that, we have to understand this morning's topic, which is who the head of the church is, and that is Christ. But when we say that Christ is the head of the church, what does that mean? And why is it significant? And, and that's what I'd, I'd like to look at this morning. And I want to explore three observations from Scripture. This is not going to be an exhaustive message on uh, Christ's lordship over the church. We can't do that uh, in an hour. Many, many books have been written on this topic. But I, I want to look at three observations from Scripture about the significance of Christ's headship over the church. It should be number one, that he is the one who began the church. Secondly, that he is the one who leads the church. And thirdly, that he is the one who grows the church. Right? That he, the one who began the church, who leads the church, and who grows the church. And beginning with that first one, I'd ask you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And we are going to, to read... Uh, verses 15 through 18, but ultimately we are going to land on verse 18. But what comes before it is very important. And this is uh, what is known as the Christ hymn. This is Paul writing to the church at Colossae and teaching them about who the real Jesus is. Because there were false teachers coming in and they were uh, attacking uh, the word of God and the person of Christ, as all false teachers do and ultimately all cults do. Uh, anyone who is going to, to lead others uh, astray is going to have to to create a different understanding of Scripture and a different understanding of who Jesus is. And that's what they were beginning to do. So begin looking with me at this Christ hymn. Uh, we're going to start reading in verse 18, 15 of Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says, speaking of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And what Paul is laying out here is that Christ is preeminent in creation and he is preeminent in redemption. And as he is speaking about Christ's preeminence in redemption, he's going to to make that little statement uh, that Christ is the head of the church. But but what we before we get there to hit Christ being the head of the church, it's, it's worthwhile just to, to briefly look at some passage or that first part of the, the passage that we spoke about a little bit two weeks ago. But this is showing us what we must believe about who Jesus is. Because again, as I said, to follow Jesus is to trust in who he is and what he has done. Uh, and, and what we see about who he is is clearly stated here in Colossians 1, that he is the image of the invisible God, that uh, God is spirit. And if you want to know who and what God is like, you look to Christ. He is the, the, the perfect image of the invisible God. Secondly, uh, in verse 15, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. And I know there's been a lot of hubbub about this uh, throughout church history, and there's many uh, groups that would look to that little statement that Christ is the firstborn of creation and say, see, Jesus is a created being. But that is not uh, what this is saying. That word firstborn points to the idea of having a special status as the oldest son in a family, as being uh, a firstborn. It means that you had a special privilege and authority. It means that you had a double uh, portion of the inheritance. Uh, and, and so the, the, the point that Paul is making, uh, he's emphasizing the first rather than the born. He's emphasizing the priority, the preeminence of Christ, his first standing over all creation, ultimately the same standing that God has. Uh, and, and he's saying Jesus is of the highest rank, the highest position, the highest authority. Uh, and this word is used elsewhere in scripture not to point out that this one is the the firstborn or the oldest son but the 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 idea of preeminence or having first rank just one example of that is in psalm 89 verse 27 speaking of king david if you remember uh, back in i think first samuel 16 when when David is anointed as king. Uh, the prophet uh, Samuel comes to his father's house, to comes to Jesse's house and says, where are your sons? Uh, and, and Jesse keeps bringing him sons, but the Lord's like, nope, not this one, not this one, not this one. And he finally gets to the, the youngest son who wasn't, Jesse didn't even think to bring him because he's like, it can't be David. He's the youngest. Uh, but Samuel says, no, go get your son who's out in the field with the sheep and bring him here. So David was the youngest son in his family. But Psalm eighty nine twenty seven says this, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So the, the idea here is not uh, being, not the emphasis of born, it's the idea of first, uh, that first position. So that was a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail uh, there, but it's important for us to understand that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn, meaning the highest over all creation, uh, and he is the creator of all things. We see that in the very next statement in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
which also the implication of all things means that all things. So he can't be created and the creator of all things because that would mean that uh, he, he did not create himself. So he is the creator of all things. Uh, he is also the sustainer of all things. And as we spoke about uh, in that message on worship, that he is the purpose. He is the end toward which all things are moving. Okay, that's what we are to believe about who Jesus is. But then verse 18 begins to switch over to what he has accomplished on our behalf of how Christ is preeminent in redemption. That's where Paul makes that statement. He is the head of the body, the church. And Paul is speaking about the universal church. And as we looked at uh, in our first message of what is the universal church, it's, uh, it's all of those people who have believed, trusted in Jesus from the day of Pentecost until that future point in time when Christ raptures his church and brings us home to heaven to be with him. That is the universal church. And Christ is the head of that church. He is the one who formed her, who created her, uh, and who continues to stand preeminent over the church. And then Paul begins to unfold this a little bit more. He says he is the head of the body of the church. And then he says he is the beginning. Uh, and, and then the next statement is he is the firstborn from the dead. And what Paul is, is beginning to to say here, there's an echo of what we we looked at in uh, verses uh, 15 through 17, right? We said that he is the, the firstborn of all creation, but here Christ is the firstborn of the dead, meaning that he has the highest place of all of those who are uh, resurrected from the grave. And what that is pointing to, uh, it's pointing to the church. Uh, scripture speaks of the church as being the new humanity. Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Uh, the old is gone; the new has come. The church are those who have been remade, who have been born again, because we have acknowledged our sin and said, "Jesus, I need you to forgive me, to transform me, and to bring me into relationship." with God the Father who I have sinned against. And, and when that reality takes place, we become part of that new humanity. And Jesus is the beginning of that new humanity. He is the origin point, the firstborn from the dead. Again, he is the first rank of all of those who are resurrected. Uh, and he leads the way in the resurrection of the new humanity, uh, which is, again, made up of all of those who believe in him. And he is the head of the body. We see all this also uh, in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 29. Uh, it says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, the whole point of the church is for God to make a new humanity who will be becoming more and more like Christ. Uh, and ultimately, after or in the eternal state in the, the future, we will all be sinless. We will be like Christ, not equal with him uh, in every way, but we will be like him and becoming more and more like him in this life. So now what Paul is pointing to here is that, that Jesus is that trailblazer, the, the one who has gone before all of the rest, who is showing the way and showing that it is possible. Because if I just said, hey, you can be resurrected from the dead, you would look at me and say, well, how do I know I can do that? 
It's, it's really not happened before. Uh, and, and that's the whole point of Christ's death, burial, and his, his resurrection because it demonstrates that we can have confidence to live for him now knowing that we will be resurrected later. A great, uh, great example of this is that uh, for thousands of years, it was, it was believed that uh, no one could run a, a mile in under four minutes. They, they thought it was humanly impossible. For, so from the time of the, the Greek Olympics to the middle of the 20th century, no one had ever accomplished it. Uh, they, they thought it was this invisible barrier uh, that no one could get past, and no one could run a sub-four-minute mile. And then... Uh, and an interesting thing happened in 1954. Uh, a man named Roger Bannister ran a mile in three minutes and 59 seconds, or 59.4 seconds. So he just barely made it underneath that four-minute barrier. But what was amazing is what happened next. If once that first person ran a four-minute mile, they began to say, "Hey." This is possible. So, so after thousands of years, no one had done it. One person does it. And then 46 days later, someone else ran a sub-four-minute mile. And then the very next year, 37 runners ran a sub-four-minute mile. And then two years later, in 1956, 300 runners did it. And now good high school athletes will be able to run a sub-four-minute mile. But, but Roger Bannister was the forerunner, no pun intended. Uh, he was the, the first one to be able to go and, and break that invisible barrier. And that, that's the power of a trailblazer. And, and Jesus is that for us. That gives us confidence that this is possible and that his resurrection will lead to our resurrection. Uh, and in that way, he is the, the, the forerunner, the one who has created, who started, who began the church. He is the one who has conquered sin and death and the one that we are now called to follow with confidence, knowing that we also will be resurrected. So Christ is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. The church began with him. And all of this, we can't lose the importance of this because why did he do that? Why was he the firstborn from the dead? Well, it goes back to what we looked at two weeks ago. To what end? That he would be preeminent, that he would have first place in all things, that, that he would be worshipped, that he would receive our worship, even as we can now uh, live and, and work and, and worship with confidence, knowing that we will be resurrected in the future. Again, Jesus began the church, and the church is for him. We can't lose sight of that. And, the, and as we remember that the church is for Jesus, and not first and foremost for us, that when we make the church about him, then the blessings trickle down to us. When we focus on worshiping him, the, the greatest blessings then come to us as we strive to make much of him. But if we, if we flip that on its head, if we say, hey, the church needs to be about us, about our blessing and our benefit, ultimately Christ doesn't get the glory and then eventually the, the, the blessings to us die out. Uh, and we'll look at that more and more later on in, in this study, but, but, but that's always the temptation uh, is to to forget this truth, that Jesus is the one who began the church and that the church is for him. Uh, 
We try and make it about ourselves uh, and, and lose sight of what is important. So what we see here is that Jesus is the one who began the church, but he didn't merely create it and then abandon it. He didn't say, okay, uh, I'm done with the church now, go do your thing. Uh, but Jesus created the church, he, he began the church, and then he is the one who is currently leading the church, which brings us to our second point. He is the one who leads the church, who is in authority over the church. And if you, if you turn to the left in your Bible, just a couple of pages, over to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at a couple of verses there, and just like we did in in Galatians, we're going to kind of get a running start. We're going to land ultimately in verses 22 and 23, but I want you to to begin reading with me in verse 19. And even in verse 19, we're, we're dropping into the middle of a long run-on sentence. Paul wasn't very good at English grammar, uh, but he just he just kept going. And, and Ephesians 1 uh, is many, many verses, but really only a couple of sentences. So uh, looking at Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 19 and following. Uh, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, so as Paul is speaking about God, how God the Father ha has demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of His power. How God has demonstrated His power is through what He has accomplished in His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and as Paul is speaking about that, he points out what God has done through His Son. Uh, and God has placed Christ far and above everything and everyone else. Not only in this age, but also, he says, in the age to come. Uh, and then Paul specifically points out Jesus' relationship with the church in verses 22 and 23. It says, and he put all things, again, that's an exact number, right? All things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Uh, the, the idea of a, you know, a conquering uh, general putting something, un, you know, the, the defeated under his feet here that the point is that jesus is the head over the church he is the one in complete authority over the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all and so we as a church uh, must recognize and submit to christ as our head as our leader as our lord uh, and our submission to his lordship is a demonstration of our faith. That's a key thing to understand. Our submission to his lordship is a demonstration of our faith. If we don't submit, we're saying we don't believe. Uh, we obviously don't believe that Christ is lord if we are unwilling to submit to him. 
Uh, if you if you turn over to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter seven, you see uh, a powerful connection between uh, authority or submission to authority and faith. Luke chapter seven, you probably have uh, a heading there that shows you that this is about. Uh, Jesus healing a centurion servant. You're probably familiar with this story, but let's, let's read it together. Beginning of verse 1. It says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and he was not far off from the house, or when he was not far off from the house. The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes and say to another, come, and he comes and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So if we, if we look and, and, and see what this centurion believes, he says, I am not worthy, Jesus, of having you come into my house. So the centurion obviously believes that Jesus is more than just a, a good Jewish teacher. Uh, and he says, uh, I'm not worthy to come into your house, but Jesus, all you need to do is say the word, and I know that my, my servant can be healed. Because and, and the centurion points to the idea of authority. Uh, and that Christ has all authority, says, Jesus, you have authority over disease or whatever it is that's making my servant sick. Uh, and then the centurion points to his own exercise of authority as a soldier. He says, hey, uh, I, I have uh, people that I can command and say, do this, and they go and do it. Uh, they obey me because I am in authority over them. And so that's what, what the centurion's argument is here. Jesus, I know what authority you have just say it and it will be done. And look at what Jesus says about this. Jesus' evaluation of this man. He says, when, it says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. That there is this connection of understanding and submitting to the authority of Christ is a demonstration of our faith. And we have to, to understand that, again, both individually and as a church. If, if we say that we believe in Jesus, then we need to submit to him. I love, I think it's Luke 6.44, where Jesus asks, Why do you call me Lord and then not do what I say? Right? Your, your talk isn't matching your walk. Uh, and he, Jesus asked that question of those who were supposedly following him. Uh, but again, Christ's headship over the church and our church, uh, the local church and the universal church, uh, it also begins to show us uh, that there are a lot of organizations or so-called churches 
uh, that have structures that are contrary to this. Uh, that they, they elevate man to positions uh, that we should not have. Christ is the head of the universal church. Uh, but there are other organizations that would claim human authorities are the, the heads and the leaders of the universal church, as they would define it. Okay, the, the, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that uh, the Pope is uh, the leader of the church on earth. He is Pontifex Maximus, uh, that he is the, the highest leader, that he is, uh, in essence, the, the vicar of Christ on earth, Christ's representative on earth. And he, when he seat, sits in uh, St. Peter's chair, he speaks ex cathedra, uh, that he speaks without... Uh, error. He, he speaks infallibly, and there's this large structure to the Roman Catholic Church, and the, and the Pope sits at the top, and then there's the College of Cardinals and all of these other structures, but, but that is not what we see in Scripture. We see Christ as the head of the church, and everyone else is the body. It's a very flat uh, corporate structure in what we see in Scripture. Uh, another uh, Example of this is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, of their official teaching and their official structure, they have uh, all of this hierarchy, and they, they have officially uh, what it says on their uh, website. says this, under the direction of Jesus Christ. So they're saying, hey, we have this under the authority of Jesus, but they're also, as we'll see later, they're going to reject his headship in other ways because they're not going to be uh, going according to who he is in scripture or according to his word. Remember, every false religion will address or attack who Jesus is and the authority of scripture. It says the church is led by 15 apostles who are also regarded as prophets, seers, and revelators. Uh, and the man who has been an apostle the longest becomes or is the president of the church, and by inspiration, he selects two other apostles as counselors, and these three function as the first presidency, which is the highest governing body of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So they have the, the first presidency, these the president, and then two counselors or who are also apostles, and then they have 12 other apostles, the quorum of the 12, and then they have this, this really far-reaching hierarchy uh, of authority. Again, what we see in Scripture is there's one head, and everyone else is the body. Uh, and, and that is what we uh, should understand uh, is to be the order of the church, which we'll, we'll get to in, in coming weeks uh, in our study uh, on uh, the church. But some of you may be asking, well, well what about pastors and, and elders uh, in our church? Well, pastors and elders are under shepherds. Uh, that we are, uh, we are shepherds who under operate under the authority of the chief shepherd, and you can see that in First Peter chapter five, uh, verses uh, one through four. As he's speaking to the elders, and he says, "Hey, you're to to shepherd the flock of God among you." Uh, but then in verse four, he says, "When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory," and and that's kind of the unique aspect of. Again, of the uh, of biblical ecclesiology, a biblical theology of the church, uh, in, which is in contrast to the, those systems that I mentioned in Roman Catholicism and in the Mormon church, is that uh, we would see pastors and elders as both uh, shepherds and sheep. 
that we are those who have been tasked and given a, uh, a responsibility by God to, to, to lovingly care for and shepherd his flock, to, to teach his word, and, and to be the, the guards of the, the church, of the body, uh, against false doctrine, against false teachers. Uh, and, but at the same exact time, pastors and elders are still accountable to one another and to the whole body. Uh, and we are still sheep in need of shepherding. Uh, and, and that's where it's contrary to uh, those other systems and philosophies. And uh, it's, it's very important that we, that we understand that. If, again, pastors and elders, again, sheep and shepherds, uh, that we are still in need of shepherding. We are still accountable to everyone else. We, uh, the, the one another commands, uh, we still have to submit to those. And we still submit to all of Scripture. And again, ultimately, uh, the true corporate structure, if I could say that, the organizational flowchart of the church is Christ as the head and everyone else is the body, uh, even the pastors and the elders. Uh, and so Christ's complete authority over his church, which we see here in Ephesians, uh, means that we are to completely submit to his authority over us. If he has all authority, then we submit to his complete authority. Uh, he determines what we do and how we do it. He determines our priorities and our methods. Uh, and ultimately, what he has commanded us to do is summarized in, in the two great commandments, right? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right, those are the, the two greatest commandments, and that's the, the summary of the whole Old Testament law. And then Christ has, has given us the Great Commission as a church to go and make disciples, baptizing, uh, and baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ has commanded uh, until Christ returns. Uh, that is what we are to focus on, and even in that, the Great Command, comm Commission there is a, a method in there. We go and make disciples. And how do we do that? By going, baptizing, and teaching. Uh, that, that's the methodology that Christ has commanded of us. But again, we'll be looking at that in future weeks. Uh, that He determines our priorities and our methods. And submitting to His Lordship means that we also understand our position in the church. Again, He, he is our our King, our Lord, who's going to return. And when He returns, we're going to have to give an account to Him. We're going to have to, to, to answer Him regarding how we've spent our time, our, our treasures, our talents, all of our resources. Uh, and so our, our hope and our prayer, again, when we understand the headship and the Lordship of Christ, suddenly we realize that we want to be found faithful when He returns. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul speaking about uh, the apostles uh, in these verses, but it's also so applicable to, to any and every Christian. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Uh, that, that Jesus uh, is the one who leads the church, who is in authority over the church. Uh, he's the one that we all have to answer to. And when we keep that in mind, we should have a desire to be found faithful when he returns. 
So Jesus is the one who began the church, and he is the one who now leads the church. And thirdly, he is the one who grows the church. And I know we were in Ephesians, but let's turn back over to uh, the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to land in verse 19, but we'll begin in verse 18 and, and read together. Paul says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so again, I know we're, we're parachuting down into different passages here, and what we just parachuted down into is Paul uh, addressing the false teachers that had come into the town of Colossae and who had been insisting uh, and qualifying themselves based upon these so-called special revelation that they had. They were puffed up by these visions, and they were saying, hey, these visions from God qualify them and disqualify others from being teachers and leaders in the church. And Paul says, no, let no one disqualify you because of some vision that they've had or what they're insisting on. Uh, and And Paul begins to to describe these false teachers. In verse 19, uh, it's very interesting. Paul basically says these who are insisting upon these visions and stuff, they are revealing that they are not connected to the head. And that echoes back what he said in Colossians chapter 1. Who is the head? Christ. And what's the body? The church. Uh, So Paul is saying that those who insist upon these things are not connected to the head, not holding fast to the head. And then he describes the head uh, in verse 19. From whom the whole body, it says, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So, So it's really amazing what he is saying here, that from the head comes all of the growth of the church. From the head, the the, the body is nourished and knit together. Now that we are sustained and strengthened and and brought together by Christ. And and what's interesting is that in the the Greek, that that nourished and and knit together, they're, they're present passive participles. And let me explain what that means. So present, it's an ongoing reality that the church is constantly being nourished and knit together Uh, and then it is also a a passive reality meaning that uh, the church is the one receiving the action so christ is the one performing the action upon the church he's the one doing the nourishing and the knitting together as the head of the body 
Uh, and so here, Paul uses this metaphor of, of a human body, right, of joints and ligaments growing together uh, with a growth that ultimately comes from God. So it's from Christ the, the head and from God the Father. Uh, and then Paul uses another metaphor in, in a similar passage in Ephesians chapter 2. You can turn there or you can listen to me read it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And again, Paul speaking about the church. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amazing passage. And here Paul uses the, the illustration of a temple building of what's being constructed, or he says the temple is growing, right? Uh, Kind of mixes his metaphors there. Uh, But being built together, grown together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Another similar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, where Paul's going to use yet another metaphor of a plant to describe what happens in the church. So what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul uses all of these metaphors, but ultimately the point of all the metaphors is that who is the one who grows the church? It's the triune God. It's Christ as the head. It's, it's God the, the Father who planned all of this out. It's God the Spirit who's working in and among each of us so that we use our spiritual gifts for the, the advancement of the body and the, and the growth uh, of the unity of the church. We see that in Ephesians 4. And, and so all of this this works together for, for a very simple point, right? That, that no church will grow unless God grows it, right? Re- really simple principle to, to keep in mind. So it's safe to say that healthy churches will grow. Uh, but, but there's a little caveat here that we have to, to keep in mind. That growth is not necessarily the sign of a healthy church, okay? So healthy churches will grow, but growth is not the only sign of a healthy church. Okay? And a large church is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Right? Because again, as we, as we spoke earlier about uh, the teachings of the, the Roman Catholic Church and uh, the, the LDS Church, both of them uh, ha- have deviant doctrines where they, they part ways with Scripture, but both of them could, could just look at the sheer size of their churches and say, look, God is blessing this, right? They could just point to that and say, look at, look at how all of this, and, and you can look at many churches across America, individual churches uh, that are massive, right? Joel Osteen has a church of like 25,000. His church basically meets at a basketball arena, uh, and 
So you, you could look and say, well, look, God's blessing his church. But then you realize, no, Joel Osteen doesn't proclaim the gospel. Well, we just read Galatians. And what did Paul say about uh, anyone who proclaims a different gospel? Let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Joel Osteen was on, on CNN with Larry King and just asked about salvation. Uh, and Joel Osteen basically punted. He's like, well, I don't know. I can't judge anyone's heart. It's like, well, but that's not what the Bible says. Scripture is very clear on, on how we are saved and brought into right relationship with God. And, and many of the, the largest churches in America are large because they've abandoned the gospel. They, they proclaim a message that, that's pleasing to those who attend, and, and people attend because they like the message. You know, that's, that's Joel Osteen, your best life now. Where again, biblically, our hope is that uh, this is our worst life now uh, and, and that our best life lies ahead, right? Because Christ is, is our, uh, our forerunner, the one who is the firstborn from the dead. And now we're, we're living and suffering in this life and looking forward to the next life when we get to be with him. But what's amazing is all of this is also spoken about in Scripture, that again, that, that people would be drawn to those things that are, that are easy and pleasing to them. And in Paul's final letter to, to Timothy, as Paul is in prison and knows he is not going to get out this time, uh, this is in essence his, uh, his final words, he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 1 to following, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. And then the very next chapter, Paul says this, after saying to Timothy, preach the word. There's the the method uh, that, that Christ has given to his church. Preach the word. This is for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, that's what Paul wrote nearly 2,000 years ago, and that's what we begin, or I guess are, is just affirmed as you look at the world around us and as you look at the church around us. And... The, the reality of sitting under faithful preaching of God's word should at times make us uncomfortable. Right? Because where God's word is faithfully proclaimed, sin's going to be addressed. Uh, and repentance is going to be called for. And, and that naturally makes things uncomfortable. That makes things hard for me. It means that I have to regularly check my own heart before getting up to proclaim God's word. This is deeply humbling, week in and week out. But as the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, as Christ is worshipped and honored and submitted to as the head of the church, then he will grow his church as he sees fit so that the joints and ligaments are nourished and knit together and built up with a growth that comes from God so that the body is built up for Christ's glory and for the benefit and blessing of his people.
And, and this morning we, we've looked at uh, the significance of these three aspects of, of Christ's heads, headship. That when we, we say that Christ is head over the church, we mean that he is the one who began the church, that he is the one who leads the church now, and he is the one who grows the church. You could also add just just one more really obvious statement from the, uh, or w- one more obvious fact that when we say that Christ is the head of the church, a body can't live without a head, right? It, it's very very simple. Uh, there's there's an old saying about running around like a, a chicken with its head cut off, and that there's a story in, behind the, that saying. Typically, chickens can still walk around and, and move for up to about 15 minutes after their head is severed. Now, it's very strange and interesting to all of us who have not been farmers or uh, decapitated uh, poultry. Uh, but uh, the reason for this is because of a large portion of their brain stem, which controls their, their heart and other reflexes, is in their neck rather than in their head. It's very, very strange, but... Uh, back in September of 1945, there was a, a farmer in Colorado, uh, and he was decapitating chickens with his wife, and they killed about 40 or 50 that day. But one of them didn't behave like the rest, uh, and he continued to move for quite some time. Uh, and when he was still moving at the end of the day, they they placed him in an apple box on the front porch. And... Uh, the next morning, he was still alive and kicking, literally. Uh, and the, the farmer took the chicken into town and started uh, betting others that he had a headless chicken. So he, the farmer uh, seized the opportunity uh, to make some money. Uh, and ultimately, that chicken lived a total of 18 months without a head. Uh, and the, the farmer profited greatly during that time, taking, uh, taking it on tour as kind of a, a, a sideshow act. Um, and the chicken became known as Miracle Mike, the headless chicken. And uh, I know it, it, it's it's comical, uh, right? To to think about that. And personally, I'm like, I kind of want to kind of want to see a headless chicken. Uh, but what, what's sad and what grieves me to see is so many churches and denominations trying to be like a headless chicken. No, they, 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 they try to be the church while at the same time severing Christ from being the head of the church. And, and you know, churches and denominations have a tendency over time to do just that. Now, slowly and subtly, they reject what we have seen this morning. Now, they, they slowly and subtly reject Christ as the one who began the church and, and the reason for the church. And, and when that happens, when you, when you lose sight of the fact that the church was created by Jesus and for Jesus, then, then the church begins to be about us. And it begins to be about what we want to see happen or really accomplishing some other purpose and, and goal. And usually what happens when, when a church has lost sight uh, of the fact that uh, Jesus began the church and the church is for him, churches will begin to pursue some other thing, and that other thing usually becomes whatever the the spirit of the age is. 
that, that whatever the society is most uh, focused upon at that time, the church begins to focus upon that as well. Uh, and they end up striving to be relevant uh, and, and to, to stay at the front end of the, the changing culture. Uh, but because they end up parroting the culture and saying the exact same thing, eventually the culture just kind of says, we don't need you. Like, so what good is the church when they're saying exactly the same thing as the culture? The, the, the church just gets absorbed into the culture and becomes white noise. They're, they're no longer swimming upstream and being countercultural as they pursue Christ. They just kind of die out. And, and that's what we're seeing in, in, a, in a large number of denominations right now, that they are, they're dying because they have abandoned Christ. Still, other churches reject the leadership of Christ. Uh, they, they, they don't do this overtly, but they do it covertly. In, in little, tiny, small ways, they begin to do their own thing. And they do not submit to Christ's word and his authority all, in all things. They, they're not truly convinced of that uh, passage in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. And again, that, that implication that if, if Christ has been given all authority, then what, what is the church called to do? To submit to him completely. Churches also lose sight of the fact that, that Jesus is the one who grows the church. And that was the, the seeker-sensitive movement back in the 1980s that had a, has had a huge impact upon church culture in America uh, since that point in time. That if you do certain things, uh, that you can get the community just to come to you. Uh, you. You can attract them by by having all of these other focuses. Do what the community wants and the community will come. But that's not how the church works. The church isn't supposed to do what the community wants. The church is supposed to do what Christ wants, right? And he determines our priorities and our methods. And you begin to see how all of these three things that we've looked at that Christ, the church began with Christ that he leads the the church and is in authority over the church and then that he's the one who grows the church that they all are interwoven together again in his headship and and ultimately all of the the churches that begin to to abandon Christ uh, that sever themselves from his headship they survive for a time right a miracle miracle mike survived for 18 months but he eventually died Uh, and that's what can be seen right now that there are a a lot of churches that have severed themselves from christ and they're surviving for a time but only for a time and how does this all connect with ambassador well my my task as a pastor and as an elder is to lead us in submitting to the Lordship of Christ. To, to lead us in submitting to Christ's headship over us in every way as a church. And my prayer is that we will be a church that wholeheartedly submits to the headship of Jesus. And my hope is that we as a church will exist for multiple generations that we will be here for a long time, that we will disciple our children, that we will give them this value, this conviction that 
the church is not for us. The church is for Jesus, and he is the head of the church. That must be our conviction. That must be something that we are convinced of and that we pass on to others. And then, that must be something that we live out as individuals on a day-to-day basis, and that must be something that we live out as a church on a a week-in and week-out basis. That our, our right belief, our right worship, orthodoxy, must be matched up with right practice, our orthopraxy. Both of them submitting to what Jesus has said and what he has commanded us to do. And that is my, my hope and my prayer and that this would be a conviction for all of us uh, as we move forward together uh, as a church, even when it's just two-dimensional through a screen. But uh, I look forward uh, to seeing uh, all of those coming to camp uh, next weekend uh, and uh, the rest of you uh, in a couple of weeks when we return. But let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer together now, acknowledging His Lordship over our church. Father, we thank You for the way that You have planned and orchestrated all things throughout human history. We thank You for creating the church We thank you for sending uh, your Son to accomplish our redemption. We praise Jesus, your Son, as our head, as your perfect image and as the the firstborn from the dead, the one who has gone before us and, and shown that we will all be resurrected in like fashion and we just pray that you would work in our hearts and in our church that you would help us to, to follow Christ as our head. That we would submit to his headship. That we would be convinced that the church is not for us, but for him. And ultimately that we, that we would have the, the message of the gospel on our hearts and on our minds, on our lips. That we would not lose sight of what He has placed us here for, that we would go forth and have a desire to obey the great commandments and to fulfill the great commission, and that we would not sever ourselves from Jesus Christ, uh, the head of the universal church, the, the head of Ambassador Bible Fellowship. And may you continue to grow us as you see fit, May you nourish and knit us together according to your power rather than our own wisdom or our own cleverness. And may we labor to glorify you. And we just lift up this prayer, these petitions in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.